That's good. Uh, yeah, well, on that note, though, uh, this last week of Vacation Bible School, it really could not have happened without all of the amazing volunteers that we had. Uh, we had folks in the sound booth, we had people making snacks, we had crew leaders, we had station leaders. But there are four people that I want to just give a special thanks to. Uh, actually, a, a group of people that I want to give a special thanks to. And I want you to know, I mean, I've said this a number of times, but the staff here is really amazing. We had 100% involvement from our staff the entire week long. So on top of like, yeah, on top of like people's regular jobs, they were digging in. Uh, Catherine Gross, uh, though, kind of deserves a special shout out in the sense of we have this staff value covenant of sharing the load. And she embodied that uh, this last week. So when you see Catherine, give her a high five. I uh, want to give thanks to Catania for just jumping right in, in the middle of it. Like, yeah, there was a time like a couple weeks ago where we're like, uh, is this going to happen? Are we actually going to be able to pull this thing off? And, uh, and it, was, it was wonderful. It was really great. God showed up in all of the details. Jill and Taylor, who, you know, usually it takes about six months, I'm told, to plan vacation Bible school. And they're like, ah, we can do it in three. And so they did. And it was awesome. It was awesome. So yeah, I just want to brag on all of those folks real fast. Um, well, hi everybody. It's good to see you again. We are in the midst of a series right now on the fruit of the Spirit. And over the last few weeks, we've talked about love, joy, peace. And last week, Catherine uh, led us in a reflection on patience, which we had a great conversation in our community group, a wide-ranging wide conversation in our community group on patience. And today we come to kindness. And kindness is one of those uh, virtues that we don't talk too much about. We tend to kind of water it down in our culture and talk about being nice, but niceness doesn't quite hit the mark. Niceness is a little bland. Niceness does not actually cost you anything, but kindness is a virtue precisely because it is costly. Paul, when he is uh, describing this virtue of a fully formed life made possible by the Spirit, he uses an interesting word. The word he uses is Christotes. And while niceness is kind of this passive sort of dis uh, way of describing a disposition, Christotes is an active word. It's about meeting the needs of others while avoiding harshness. One commentator says that we have no term in English that quite carries this notion of kind and good. And while we don't have a word for it, we do have a picture of it from the life of Jesus, where he asks a question. And the answer to this question tells us whether God's fundamental disposition toward us is that of kindness or that of callousness. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 8. We're going to read verses 2 through 11. I'm going to invite Aaron to come up and read that for us. But as she comes up, you're going to notice if you are looking in your Bibles, there might be a set of double brackets or something around the text. And they indicate that this story is not found in the earliest biblical manuscripts. Uh, the early church mothers and fathers don't make mention of it. 
Um, although many of the church leaders knew of the story, because by, by the time the 4th century came around, it was part of the canon of Scripture. St. Augustine, this wonderful bishop from North Africa, said that part of the reason for that is because it took a little while for the church to catch up because the story is so dangerous. So with that in mind, let us hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be God. Now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, we would hear what it is that you are saying to the church this morning. That your light would shine into the darkest places of our hearts, that we might know and trust you. We pray this in the name of the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There's a story from ancient Judaism uh, going back to right around the first century BC of a young Greek man who is well-schooled in Platonic thought and uh, Greek philosophy, and he, he wanted to travel around to find out the greatest teachers that Israel had to offer in his quest to kind of find wisdom. So he was in this position of possibly being a convert, and so he made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem and found the two greatest and most well-known teachers of that time, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. And in great dramatic fashion, he came to them and stood on one foot and said, I want you to teach me the entirety of the Torah while I am standing on one foot. Which incidentally is how I would like for you guys to ask me questions, your deepest burning theological questions after the service. Uh, might actually help me to go a little bit faster in unpacking them. Rabbi Shammai decided that he was going to uh, answer this by getting angry with the guy and chasing him with a stick. I promise I won't do that. But Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, turned toward the young man and said, What is hateful for you, do not do to your neighbor. That 
is the whole Torah. Everything else is commentary. Go and learn. The Torah, or the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures that we know as the Old Testament, contained some 613 commandments. 248 of those were positive commandments, and 365 were negative, so one for each day of the year. And on top of that, there was a collection of oral teaching, some, some 1,500 additional laws that were meant to kind of clarify and uh, in, draw out the implications of those 613 commands. And so with all of these commands kind of rattling around in your brain, you're going to need somebody to tell you which ones are the most important ones. Hillel says, what is hateful for you, don't do that to your neighbor. Stated positively, Jesus says, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. On this, all of the law and prophets hang. And behind this young man's challenge, teach me the Torah while I stand on one foot, behind the question that the Pharisees posed to Jesus in this morning's scripture passage, the law says that we should stone such women. What do you say? Behind all of those questions is one question that we really want to know, and that question is, what is God like? And the way that you answer that question will say everything about how you operate throughout life. There are a number of things going on in this passage. The Pharisees and the teacher of the law are attempting to put Jesus in a bit of a catch-22. And as traps go, this is a pretty good one. There are at least three background levels to it that I just want to run through really quickly. Uh, first one is there is the Torah law which treats adultery as a serious violation. One of those 613 laws is this one from Deuteronomy. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge evil from Israel. And that right there is kind of where our defenses go up a bit. We're like, that seems kind of harsh. And there, that kind of names the gap between ancient and modern ideas of what it is for humans to flourish. We tend to think of sex and sexuality as private matters between consenting adults, and on top of that, all of our laws are based on the idea of individual rights. We think that as a society, we will flourish best when the individual is free to kind of pursue their desires to the fullest. Ancient societies, on their hand, they kind of flipped that around. They thought that the way that society will flourish the best is when the integrity of the whole is maintained, sometimes at the expense of the individual. Adultery then, as now, was seen to weaken society. And when that happens, it destabilizes families. And then, as now, the ones who end up paying for that the most are women and children. And that brings up the second layer, because clearly this whole thing isn't because they are concerned about women. The whole thing is not about justice at all. Deuteronomy speaks about adultery primarily in the man's actions, but the man is nowhere to be found. Cue Taylor Swift singing you know, her song about th that man. I don't know the name of the song. Thought you all would know. Apparently, y'all don't listen to Taylor Swift. That's okay. I will keep that to myself. 
But they bring this woman to Jesus just kind of as like some sort of cynical prop to their game. We're not told her name. She does not have any identity in this story beyond that of what she is accused of. Such women, in the mindset of these men, they are just meant to be used. If not for sex, then as bait for a trap. They don't see her as a person only, as someone that they can use to prove a point. And the callousness is just a bit overwhelming. Well, third then, there's process. The law required two witnesses for a crime. According to the story, she is actually caught in the act of adultery. So it's not really a question of whether or not she is guilty. That has already been determined. What Jesus is being asked to do is to discern how is she going to pay for what she is guilty of. So here's what's at stake. Jesus has been preaching in the temple. He has been gaining this reputation as a wise teacher, as one who has authority. People are falling in love with this vision that he has of the kingdom, of this good news that he is proclaiming to the poor and to the oppressed. And all of that momentum hangs on his answer to this question. What are you going to say, Jesus? What's God really like? If you show kindness and judge in favor of the woman, we can spin that easily as you're not on the side of law and order. You have no concern for God's holiness or the way that sin destroys our society. But if you hold up the law as an absolute and and treat her as someone that does not deserve compassion, then this whole game, this whole reputation that you have built up as one who brings good news to the poor and to the outcast, to the ones who are counting on the kindness of God the most is going to be exposed as a sham. So what is it going to be, Jesus? Kindness or conviction? I mean, as traps go, this is like inception level dream within a dream within a dream levels deep. So how does Jesus spring the trap? Well, he does it in a way that brings affliction to the comfortable and comfort to the afflicted. He stops what he's doing. He begins to write on the ground. And some ancient accounts say that he was listing out the sins of the accusers, but most accounts omit that detail because it probably is beside the point. Maybe he was just doodling. Maybe he was just trying to kind of take, you know, the emotional intensity out of the air, like the therapist telling you to count to ten when you're angry. But whatever it is that he was doing, it allowed for just a moment for the eyes to be on him and no longer on the woman. And when he stands up, he says, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. It's a really simple response. But it's got some layers to it as well. Suddenly all of the attention is diverted away from the woman and away from Jesus, and now it's back onto the accusers. You notice that he doesn't say that punishment is inappropriate. He doesn't say that only sinless people can carry out punishment. He doesn't even say that the law is wrong. He just says that if you are going to create a world in which punishment is the standard, in which restoration is not on the table, then guess what? You are going to have to live in that world, so you better duck and cover. 
Most of the Bibles have as the heading to this story a woman caught in adultery. And I think that kind of misses the point a little bit because at least as far as Jesus is concerned, this is as much about a story of men who are caught in hypocrisy. And whatever the risk that Jesus takes, his point is taken because these accusers begin to walk away one at a time. But this too is where the kindness of Jesus is on display because as soon as he makes his devastating statement, he goes back to drawing on the ground, goes back to all eyes on him, allowing these guys to just kind of walk away. Jesus doesn't make eye contact with them. He doesn't take any delight in their shameful kind of hiding back into the shadows. His kindness extends even to those who are hostile to him. And then just as quickly as it began, the whole tension of the scene just kind of evaporates until it's just two left. Jesus and this woman. He straightens up and asks her two simple questions. Woman, where are they? It's the first time in this passage that anyone has actually even addressed her as a person, as somebody bearing dignity, as somebody created in the image of God. And asking the question gives her a chance to look around and see that there's nobody standing there. And then he asks the question, which really, again, is at the heart of all of our questions about what God is like. Does anyone condemn you? She doesn't need a defense anymore, but the way that this kind of question and answer is unfolding suggests that there's still a kind of trial being played out here. And so Jesus is taking her seriously. He's taking what she has done seriously. And she speaks the only three words that she has in this whole play. She says, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go. Sin no more. This is how Jesus holds kindness and conviction together. Neither do I condemn you is simply putting flesh on what he said earlier, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It is the kindness of God is that in Jesus, the only one who was without sin has not come throwing stones. In your moment of weakness, in your moment of shame, in your moment of despair, of missing the mark, helplessness, falling short, Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, God is for you. I wonder if she had ever been told that before. I wonder how long it takes for us to get that into our bones, that that God's decision to be with us means being with us at our worst in the midst of our hang-ups and our failings, that the gospel is not God's waiting for us to get ourselves all polished up, to be shiny with our best face forward. God comes to us and meets us and shows kindness to us when we are raw, when we are weathered, that the gospel is not if we just get our acts together in order to win God's favor. No, it is that God is coming to us right as it is falling apart, the gospel is grace and its gift. You cannot perform your way into it. You cannot 
You cannot act your way into it. You cannot muster conviction to it. You simply receive it. You cannot make it show up. You simply wake up to the fact that it is already here. The gospel is not about you trying really, really hard to make yourself worthy. It is waking up to the reality that in Jesus, that is not how it ever was in the begin with. God is for you. The advantage that this woman has over most of us is that hiding is no longer an option for her. She can't pretend to have it all together. She can't put a brave face on when the world around her is falling apart. The only thing that is left for her is to be confronted by Jesus and to find that he is not willing to throw stones. mystery of Scripture is we actually don't really know how her story ends. Uh, we know that Jesus takes her seriously, and a lot of people want to stop the reading at neither do I condemn you and say that that's the kindness of Jesus, but actually so is go and sin no more because grace intercepts us at the places where we are most likely to self-destruct. Jesus holds kindness and conviction together. And we know that Jesus takes her sin seriously because at the beginning of the chapter, these men are wanting to throw rocks at this woman, but by the end of the chapter, they are ready to throw rocks at Jesus. I don't know where you find yourself in this story. Maybe you're the woman and you need to hear about God's kindness because you've been around people who just want to hit you about God. But I suspect that a lot of you, if you've been in the church for a while, maybe you have to guard your heart from time to time against the kind of callousness that can't take, it can't help but take just a little bit of delight when other people fail, especially if it helps you win an argument. You want to show kindness, but not at the expense of your convictions. We live in a cultural moment where you can score points against whatever other you can imagine, be they political, be they religious, be they secular, you fill in the blank by, by flashing your virtue cards and showing how these other people just don't quite live up. And kindness is really easy when there's harmony, when you know everything is kind of humming along as it's supposed to, when there is, you know, peace in your family, when you're hanging out with people who are a lot like you. But it is a lot tougher to show kindness with those with whom we disagree. Or when there's tension in our family or in our neighborhood, in our community, in the place that we work. Now, if we want to show kindness, we, we got to know that it's going to have the desired effect Maybe what Jesus wants us to see is that our desire for certainty, where grace and judgment are concerned, is exactly the kind of thing that he wants to free us from. Paul tells the Romans that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Because it has the power to kind of awaken the imagination to a different kind of life than the one that we're currently living 
I think the story is here in part because Jesus is more concerned that his followers learn how to extend kindness to those who are caught in their worst moments than he is in making sure that his disciples know how to police the forgiven. And on some level, this is the story that our culture most longs to hear. The the most popular story on NPR's long-running program, StoryCorps, is exactly the kind of story about how kindness disarms aggression. It's a story about a young man named Julio Diaz who's a social worker, and rather than me tell you the story, if you direct your attention to the screen, I'm going to let him tell the story in his own words. It's kindness that leads to repentance far more than judgment. I love this story because it shows how kindness is not a passive thing. It it actually carries us into the world. The church is the community sent to risk God's kindness to the world in the confidence that God's kindness can actually remake the world. Missionary and theologian Leslie Newbigin put it this way, the church is not sent into the world to explain the world, but to change it. And only by being part of Jesus' movement into the world can we make sense of it. Friends, Jesus is God's kindness to the world. 
God's movement to the world is to create a people who demonstrate his kindness, who see others through the eyes of the gospel, not just their faults and their fears and their hang-ups, but through the power of grace, see them as part of the family in the newness that God makes possible. What is it like to see the failures of the past unmasked by Jesus who says, they don't hold any power over your future. That belongs to me. As my friend Barry Corey once said, your kindness, when you offer it, it, it might be rejected, but it will never be forgotten. Because when you live out of this kindness, the point is not to be received, but to make yourself receivable. We show kindness because that is what we have been shown. You see, we are all like this woman. We are all broken and heartbroken with our failures and our hang-ups before us, unable to imagine that God is not dying to throw them right back into our face. And so the question that's at the heart of all our deepest questions, what is God like? What is at the very center of life? It's grace upon grace, upon grace. It's that God does not want to define us by the failures of our past, but only by the hope He makes possible for our futures, a hope that allows us to move out into the world with the kindness that we have been shown. And friends, the rest is commentary. And now as we come to the table we see the welcome reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that in this meal, the, the only sinless one, the one who could have leveled judgment at us, instead became the one who is judged in our place. Friends, this meal reveals the kindness of God. And so as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Friends, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And after he had given thanks for the meal, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Take all of you and eat of this. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the cup of the new covenant. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we are proclaiming his dying until he comes again. Friends, we are taking communion in the time being through uh, individual communion cups that you can find in the back of the uh, sanctuary in the narthex if you have not received one. We will together open the cups and the little wafers inside and take this meal together. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and eat. All has been made ready. And as you do, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen.